Before we get started with today's show, let me invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get updates on X, that's formerly Twitter, at Tavis Smiley. By the way, should you miss any part of today's program or want to catch up on previous shows, you can always visit thetavissmileyshow.com. That's thetavissmileyshow.com or wherever you get your podcast and listen to the Tavis Smiley podcast version of this program at your leisure. Let me commence by saying happy Black History Month to you. Of course, around here, we do black history every single day. I still ain't figured out how <laughs> how we got stuck with the shortest and coldest month of the year to celebrate black history. But I'm with Du Bois. Would America have been America without her Negro people? Think about that for a second. Would America have been America without her Negro people? I think one can answer that question without casting aspersion or demonizing anybody else. And to quote that great historian, Jordan Peele, nope, it just wouldn't be, right? All right, now that we've dispensed of that, here's the rundown for our first day of Black History Month show for you. I warn you, since it is the first day of Black History Month, this is a real black show. I mean, really, 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 really black. In our second hour, Ernest Krim is an anti-racist educator who actually left the public school system as a history teacher to deliver his lessons to a much broader audience. He throws open the doors of, uh, on black history, dispelling myths and celebrating heroes and sheroes through social media's engaging lens, one captivating tale at a time. In our third hour, two conversations. Up first, a premier voice on colonial oppression, Joris Lachin, who works to deconstruct colonial power structures of the world over on the B side of our three, a conversation with Jelani Natty about black men hike, healing, bonding, and conquering anxieties one step at a time. But in this first hour, yeah, we're going to squeeze a 40-pound show into an 80-pound bag, or an 80-pound show, I should say, into a 40-pound bag. Two more conversations in this first hour. On the B side of this hour, Miami University of Ohio professor Ann Whitesell on the power and peril of ballot initiatives, exposing vulnerabilities in representation and championing black and other marginalized voices in a democracy that is clearly under siege. I've, uh, on a personal note, uh, we'll discuss this with Ann Whitesell when she gets here, um, but I've grown more and more weary over the years about all these ballot initiatives. I live in California. This program heard across the nation, but I'm based in L.A. And in California, we just get way too many ballot initiatives and referendums, and I'm sick of it. What do we elect y'all fools? I mean, what do we elect y'all to do? What do we elect y'all to do? Why is everything a ballot initiative? Uh, it's punting in the worst way and, frankly, exploiting uh, oftentimes marginalized voices and people of color. That's my take on it. We'll see what Ann Whitesell says about it when she joins us. Uh, later uh, in this hour. All that said, we commence today's show with Kasim Rashid, who is uh, challenging incumbent U.S. Congressman Bill Foster uh, in the Chicago suburbs. But in this particular race, uh, Rashid versus Foster, the call for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas has become an issue uh, in this race and, frankly, in other races across the country. The Intercept did an interesting piece about this that I read and wanted to invite uh, Kasim Rashid on this program. That's how political Think about this. That's how political U.S. policy in the Middle East has become, that a foreign policy issue, underline that, a foreign policy issue is front and center in this and in other major congressional races. I am pleased to welcome Kasim Rashid to this program. Kasim, how are you today, sir? I'm good, Mr. Smiley. How are you? Please call me Tavish. You doing all right, brother? Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. I'm, I'm doing all right. It's good to have Happy you. Happy Black History Month to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did I pronounce your name correctly? 
It's actually a costume. It's like awesome with a Q and Hurlet. Awesome costume. Oh, I like that. Awesome. That's even better. Awesome costume. Costume Rashid. All right, costume. Uh, good, to have, <laughs> good to have you on the program. I'm sorry I, I jacked that up. I want to make sure I got your name pronounced no, correctly. Good. That said, you, um, you heard me say a moment ago that, uh, well, first of all, tell me about this, tell me about this district. Uh, I, I mentioned this in the Chicago suburbs. Tell me about the district, first of all. It's a deep blue district that has uh, every, you know, the primary is the determinative election. It's racially diverse. It's on the Democratic side. It's about 45% people of color. And it's a, it's a large district. It's got some really developed urban areas and some really rural areas as well. And it's a district that staunchly supports ceasefire, universal health care, getting corporate money out of politics, properly regulating banks all areas that uh, the incumbent is completely out of touch with and all areas that we are advancing and leading by example and so far having a lot of fun and a lot of success in this campaign. Cosman, tell me quickly uh, what your opponent is saying uh, regarding the ceasefire and then we'll, we'll come forward from there. Well, Illinois District 11 has long supported ceasefire and, you know, he unfortunately does not. In fact, we've scheduled three debates. He committed to them, then canceled all of them. The fourth debate, he showed up last minute and then left midway through. And in that debate, he was asked point blank, will you call for a ceasefire? And his answer was, in my view, extraordinarily cruel uh, in saying that, you know, despite the 26,000 civilian deaths, despite the 12,000 children being killed, he responded, I do not support things that are permanent and immediate ceasefires. And, and you know, the irony of all this, uh, Tavis, is that he and I agree that Israel is violating international human rights law. He agrees that civilians are innocently being killed. Innocent civilians are being killed. Um, he agrees. In fact, he's on record saying that, in his view, there's a special place in hell for Netanyahu. But despite all that, he refuses to have the courage to call for a ceasefire as innocent people die. And that, to me, is just mm -hmm. unacceptable. Kasim, like awesome, or Rashid is our guest in this right. hour. Uh, when we come forward, uh, a great deal more to talk about. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is, it's, it's, it's not often that in congressional races where people are thinking about you know, issues that are closer to home, that you have foreign policy at the center of a race. But this is happening uh, not just in this district in Chicago, but around the country. This ceasefire has become a major issue. The White House made a major announcement today. Uh, about what President Biden is doing. Uh, he's feeling the heat. He is feeling. We talked to Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, to start this program yesterday. And in the uh, 24 hours since that conversation, the president is feeling some heat and has made a major decision, a major move regarding uh, yeah, the war between Israel and Hamas. We'll talk about that in, when we come forward. You're listening to Tavis Smart. Sounds, Sounds different. Huh. This, this is Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Qasem uh, Rashid, who is running for Congress uh, in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, this is just one example of a number of races across the country where a ceasefire uh, in Gaza has become front and center. Uh, and uh, again, The Intercept uh, did a pretty interesting piece about uh, this issue and how uh, in uh, this uh, election cycle, uh, a foreign policy issue is uh, at uh, center stage in many of these debates um, of uh, persons running against incumbents uh, who have not stepped up um, uh, in regard to a ceasefire in the Middle East. So I mentioned a moment ago that uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, was our guest on this program, one of our guests on the program yesterday. And in the 24 hours since she was here, the president uh, has responded to the heat uh, that you know he is feeling about the way he is stewarding or not, as it were, this crisis in the Middle East. And so the headline today is that Biden imposes sanctions 
on Israeli settlers accused of attacking Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, reading now just the first couple of paragraphs from this particular article in the New York Times, President Biden on Thursday ordered broad financial and travel sanctions on Israeli settlers accused of violent attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank, a gesture aimed in part at Arab American voters in the United States who are furious with the president's backing of Israel's war in Gaza. Mr. Biden authorized sanctions with an executive order that goes further than the directive issued in December by the State Department, which imposed visa bans on dozens of Israeli settlers who have committed acts of violence in the West Bank. Uh, uh, Kassim Rashid, it's clear that the president's feeling the heat. Uh, we'll talk about your race here in just a second. But again, because it's such a huge issue politically, what do you make of the president's announcement today? I think it's a step in the right direction, but it doesn't go far enough. We, I mean, first of all, there have been, I think, 400 Palestinian civilians killed since October 7th in the West Bank, right? Mm -hmm. And prior to October 7th, from January 1st to October 6th, there was about 250 Palestinian civilians killed. And so this is an ongoing issue that's been uh, escalating without any kind of consequence. And it shouldn't have taken the atrocity of October 7th for this to create uh, you know, to, to get more airtime or get more awareness. Uh, the, the fact of the matter remains that these settlements are illegal. The military occupation is illegal. And while it's an important step to protect Palestinian civilians from extremist settlers in the West Bank, the broader step that needs to be taken is to demand removal of these illegal settlements and demand removal of this illegal occupation. That's in accordance with international human rights law. That's accordance with U.S. For, uh, policy as well. It's a matter of enforcing it. Um, what What do you make of this attempt by the president, as I mentioned a moment ago, to sort of tamp down the criticism of him in uh, the Arab-American community? I mentioned on this program in conversation with somebody yesterday that I've read a number of pieces where the Arab community, specifically, say, in Michigan, uh, a, a, very, a very important state, of course, in any yeah. presidential election. In Michigan, they basically said, don't even come here. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear from you. There's basically nothing you can say or do at this point to appease us. We are not voting for you, Joe Biden, given the way you've mishandled uh, this particular crisis. They don't even want to see him in Michigan. And as you know, there's a sizable uh, Arab uh, American community in, yeah. in the state of Michigan. So I guess the question now is whether or not you think this in any way, uh, back to that word, appeases uh, those voters of Arab uh, American uh, descent, uh, Arab descent, who have been furious with him in this in this regard. I, I, again, I think this is a step in the right direction, but I don't think this goes far enough. I don't mm -hmm. think people will see this as a as an adequate response to what's going on, the mass death and destruction and occupation of land that's going on. So again, I mean, it's, it, that's my very clear answer. It's, this is definitely a step in the right direction, but it does not go far enough. We need to see more action for sure. Yep. So back to your race and other races like yours where this issue of the ceasefire has become front and center. Why? I'm not naive in asking this, but why do you think in your district and others a foreign policy issue uh, is at the epicenter of these campaigns for Congress? Well, I think it's a number of things. I think, one, people are exhausted with uh, war. I think, you know, we're, we're seeing the generation who uh, grew up in the Iraq and Afghan war, uh, now seeing the Ukraine war, now seeing this another war start. I think people are, are tired of it, and, and they don't want to see our tax dollars fund these wars. Uh, two, and, and probably more importantly, is just the humanitarian death toll and crisis of it all. Um, I'm seeing support from people across the spectrum. Uh, you know, we have conservatives 
coming to our event saying that we're, you know, they're sick and tired of the war and the, the killings and the bombings. We've got Jewish people, Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians working together to call for a ceasefire and demand accountability. And then three, you know, we, we look at the struggles. Sure, the economy is doing better, but we look at the struggles of so many people in this country right now, right? 62% are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, 22 million households are in a home that the rent is more than they can afford in any kind of comfortable way. In, inflation is down, but that doesn't account for the higher rates of, of food costs. And so people see all, uh, spending absurd amounts of money on these wars, and they look at what's happening locally, and it doesn't make sense. The math doesn't math, as the kids say. And, and that's why I'm heartwarmed to see the overwhelming response. 80% of Democrats, almost 70% of Americans overall recognizing that this is not a justifiable war, this, this killing of innocent civilians and, and Gazans and children. I mean, 12,000 children have been killed. There's nothing that justifies this. And we can address this if we effectively call for a ceasefire, immediately release all the hostages and all the political prisoners and, and Israeli prisons, demand an end to the settlements and call for an end to the military occupation. None of this is outside the realm of reality. This is all what basic human rights law wants. And I think people are being much more informed on this because they see the impact it has locally and they want justice going forward. When you say this issue of ceasefire resonates with 80 percent of Democrats, uh, you're right about that, but not 80 percent of Democrats in the House of Representatives, as you well know. Uh, Eighty percent right. of them have not stepped up in this regard. Um, what do you make of the way in which the Democratic Party or members of the Democratic Party now in Congress who are seeing the same things that you're seeing, the same things that I'm seeing, they're in the same conversations, they're all running for re-election, and yet 80% of them have not called for a ceasefire. Democrats, how do you read that? Well, I think, and this is the point that I'm making to my, my constituents here in this district, that my opponent, Bill Foster, has been around for 16 years. He has not been the lead sponsor of a single piece of legislation in 16 years, but he's taken millions in corporate and dark pack money for what end? To what end is he actually serving? And, and even now, you have 80% of people in his Democratic base in his primary calling for a ceasefire, and he just refuses. And so, you know, I've always said that whoever funds a candidate when they run for office is who that public uh, official will be accountable to when they are in office. My campaign is 100% funded by people. We don't take a single corporate PAC dollar, not one. And by the way, we outraised Bill Foster in Q3, and we got pretty darn close in Q4 as well with more than 11,000 donations. And, and I just want to emphasize, uh, Tavis, how unifying this issue is. 95% of Americans, according to polling done by End Citizens United, 95% of Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike, want corporate money out of politics. I'm the only candidate offering that. And now, when I'm elected, God willing, people will know that they have my ear, that I am accountable to them not to some lobbyists. And so the fact that we're seeing such a massive disconnect from people like Bill Foster and constituents, in my view, is the sure sign that it's time for him to go and it's time to, for us to elect a new person, myself, who actually will be accountable to the voters of the 11th district. Let's talk about that disconnect. Again, we're talking about your race in particular, but broadly speaking, the reason I'm having this conversation is because, uh, again, this issue of the ceasefire has become front and center in many of these congressional races across the country because um, most of these members of Congress uh, have not called for a ceasefire uh, in the, this Israel-Hamas conflict. So the, the question I want to give you a chance to, 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 to uh, respond to now, uh, Qasem, is... Why, in your particular race, 
Mr. Foster refuses to call for a ceasefire. Put another way, and you said it a couple times now, there's a disconnect between many of these members of Congress and their constituents who want to see a ceasefire. For that matter, there's a disconnect between Joe Biden and Democrats uh, who want to see a ceasefire. What is that disconnect about? Why, in your particular race, do you think your opponent is refusing to call for it? Again, square square that for me to the extent you can. It comes down to who is funding his reelection campaign. Look, Bill Foster has taken seven, eight hundred thousand dollars from industries and organizations who oppose a ceasefire. Um, I've taken zero dollars from such organizations. All my funding and support, our you know, seven hundred volunteers are all people who support a ceasefire. And and it, that's fundamentally the problem, the disconnect with Congress right now. You know, Congress is the only place that has an eleven percent approval rating and a ninety-one percent reelection rate. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to people who are extremely wealthy, extremely powerful. I mean, Bill Foster, the multimillionaire politician who's been around for nearly two decades, funded by billion-dollar corporations, including corporations and lobbies who want more war, right? That's how they make their money. I mean, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman, you know, uh, he's taken money from the organizations, uh, from the, uh, the company that's making the Predator drones that are being launched over Gaza right now. Uh, people don't like that. People are sick and tired of war and death. And, and, and the fact that 80% can tell him, sir, you need to stop this, and his response to them is tough luck, is a clear indication that he is not in a position of uh, responding to the needs of voters in this district. We've been out at the doors. I've been knocking doors. Our team has already knocked over 25,000 doors. We've made over 700,000 phone calls, and the consistent answer we're getting is this is the first time a member of Congress has bothered to reach out to us. And it's, uh, we're reaching out because we believe our future, our success, rests in earning the trust of actual voters. Bill Foster believes his success rests in uh, uh, adhering to what billion-dollar corporations want him to do. And our very different visions and track records and voting policies reflect that uh, difference. Let me come back to a stat you just offered, um, because this stat is quite telling, um, that Congress has uh, an 11% approval uh, rate and a better than 90% re-election rate. So only 11% yeah. of us think they're doing anything that's worthy of adulation. Yeah. But 91% is the, is, the, uh, is, the, is the re-election number. There's a huge disconnect yeah. between that 11 and that 90-plus percent. I, I totally get your point. Um, the, the, the question is, um, to what extent do you think, then, that gerrymandering is a real threat to the future of this democracy? Oh, it's, 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 I mean, it, it, gerrymandering is one of the key uh, platforms for voter suppression uh, that exists right now. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we have 535 seats in Senate and House. Only about 77 seats are viable every election cycle, 75 to 80 seats. So you're talking 10 to 15 percent are viable to flip red or blue because of gerrymandering. And again, it, it, it goes further than that, right? It's, you know, because plenty of politicians say, well, you know, we got to get corporate money out of politics, including Bill Foster. He'll talk incessantly about getting corporate money out of politics. And he even made a promise last summer that when my opponent commits to not taking corporate money, I'll stop as well. And we put out a statement that mm-hmm. said, hey, we're not taking corporate money. Will you uphold your promise? Of course, he did not uphold his promise, which was no surprise to anyone. But, Tavis, I want, I want your listeners to think about this point. When a politician says that we got to get corporate money out of politics, but they refuse to lead by example, what they're saying is everyone else is corrupt except me, mm-hmm. right? That, that I'm incorruptible. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to lead by example, then you don't deserve to be in a position of leadership. You should step aside, 
and resign or retire or do whatever it is you got to do to get out of the way so people who are going to lead by example can lead by example and build a stronger democracy for all of us. Mm. Um, finally, uh, in the 90 seconds I have left here, um, if, you are, if you are successful and you win this seat in Congress, you'll be working, of course, with the president, as all members of, of Congress do. Um, what's your sense of how this issue between now and November is going to play or not for President Biden? Are you talking about the issue of the war in Gaza? Yes, indeed. I, I think we need to see massive movement in this issue. Uh, you know, the ICJ has given a, a pretty powerful ruling um, holding um, uh, the Israeli military accountable for their indiscriminate bombing. We need to see massive movement because this is not just a Muslim issue. It's not just an Arab issue. It's not just a Jewish issue. This is a human rights issue. And I encourage President Biden, I encourage Democrats, I encourage Republicans to work together for the cause of justice and humanity. That is the path forward. That's going to strengthen our resolve against Russia's aggression in Ukraine as well. And it's going to set a precedent going forward that international law matters. Justice matters. We can't just uphold justice when it's convenient for us. We have to especially uphold it even when it's difficult. And this is one of those times. My commitment to voters is to uphold that sense of justice, economic, social, and climate justice, to demand an application of international human rights law. It's what I've done my entire career as an attorney. It's what I cherish, especially as somebody who grew up in Section 8 housing, that we need to build a better structure for people to have upward mobility. That's what I'm committed to. That's why I hope to have the support of people listening in to help us win this election. Uh, listening in on WVON in Chicago. We love WVON, uh, where this conversation is being heard right about now. Uh, our guest has been uh, Qasem, like awesome, uh, Rashid, human rights lawyer who built his career fighting for survivors of domestic violence, asylum seekers, and low-income communities. Running in this race, like a few others across the country, where the issue of a ceasefire has become uh, a central issue in these campaigns. Uh, Kasim, good to have you on. All the best to you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you, brother. Good awesome. to have you on. Thank you, man. More of Tavis Smiley just getting started on this first year of Black History Month when we come forward. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley.